0: haven't seen it yet. It's hiding. There it is. Okay, off and running. We have that. take my glasses off so I can see that I can't see. And here we are. I should say really fast, we'll be back on November the 19th. Uh, Above that, of course, is cliffsideoffice at gmail.com. And if you want to reach me, and I'm not able to answer in the volume that I used to be able to answer. I'm just, unfortunately, my Health is not good still and probably won't be good. We're already discussing how much time I'm going to have to take off here soon and it might be a couple of months in order to go through all my procedures that are coming up in the next year and at the end of the month of November. So it's going going to be a tough grind and we'll see how it goes and hopefully things will work out for change. Ah, so I'm at, uh, it's November the 5th, it's 2023, it's lecture discussion number 206 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. Okay, in the previous lecture, October 22nd, November, or number 205, sorry, so October 22nd, number 205, the discussion was um, primarily centered on the meanings of the cup of Gethsemane. Notice I said meanings. It is multifaceted. Everything is multi-layered in the Bible. Get used to that. It's interconnected. It's the cup that cannot pass. That is what it's called. The cup that cannot pass. Matthew 26, 42. And let me just give you that verse again. A second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. That's what he says. The first time that he... uh, so there's three times that he does this because I started with the, the second time. The first time was Matthew 26:39. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, "Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will." The third time that he does this is Matthew 26:44. So he left them and prayed a third time, saying the same words. So Christ repeats, repeats, repeats. Now, why is he doing that? You ask yourself immediately. And he's doing it out loud. So why is he doing this three times and out loud? Matthew twenty-six forty-five. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my Deliverer is at hand. Now, so I just want you to know for today, there's three of these. Now, Luke 22:39 through 52 adds astonishing details. As you know, you might remember that. That's the great drops of blood. That's the agony that Christ is going through, that causes blood to fall. The, the, and there's an angel that comes to strengthen Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And we've got, talked about that. The only angel that possibly can strengthen God is another part of the Elohim, and that has to be the Holy Spirit. The Father's there. The Son is there. And the Holy Spirit comes as, as described as an angel. Okay, so without controversy, despite, uh, without dispute, I should say, these prayers, these statements from Jesus to the Father, three times, beyond mysterious. Well, we can barely hope to understand any part of them. We'll be lucky to get any part of them, frankly. It will be a blessing to have parts of some of it. Nonetheless, we should we should make the attempt <coughs> excuse me <coughs> excuse me even more never never have the mindset that because you don't understand something you're not going to keep studying it because eventually you will find something in there you will just be perse- if you're persevering mark 14:32 through 42 also contains more information as does john 18 uh, 1 through 11 so You have all of that to try to help you understand what's going on in Gethsemane with this cup. And what is this bruising of the heel that we have to deal with in Genesis 3.15? Now, because time is limited, I didn't look at the clocks, but now I did. Time is limited for me. The best that I can do is to focus on pieces. I can't get the whole thing in all, in a nice little package. I can get pieces. And the pieces are amazing, so I can focus on that which is amazing and I can cover some detail and some elements and then I can trace them all back through scripture. And, and I just can't do, it isn't viable that what I'm trying to do to get that accomplished in an hour or 45 or 50 minutes, however long I go now. The format that I have actually restricts it most Sundays. For example, give, let me give you an example here. The majority position of the theological seminarian is that this is the cup of Psalm 75.8. So when they see the cup of Gethsemane, they say that's the cup of 75.8 Psalm. Let me, let me read that to you and then you get to decide. So raise your hand if you agree with the theological elite. their ivory towers. They say the cup of Gethsemane is the cup of Psalm 75.8. Got me? So far everybody's there. Prepare to not raise your hand. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. Okay, okay, there is a cup in the hand of the Lord. And the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Does that describe the Yosemite cup to you? Immediately you should notice that God is not drinking the cup at 75 five eight of Psalms. So who's drinking the cup? It's a cup of wrath. But the wrath is drunk by the wicked. All of the red wine, even the dregs of the red wine, are drunk by the wicked. That's not Gethsemane. Jeremiah 49.12 is likewise submitted as referring to the cup of Gethsemane. For, this, for thus say the Lord, behold, I should do that better. For thus say the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. Again, this is a cup of the wrath that the wicked shall drink. It's not Gethsemane, in my opinion. So you didn't need to raise your hand whether or not you agreed with the theological commentators, the the consensus that they have. The image is not that of the cup of Gethsemane that must be drunk by Christ. The cup that cannot pass unless he drinks it. Now, again, let me say that again as long as we, I can. The cup of Gethsemane is called the cup that cannot pass. It cannot pass. And cannot pass is the key to all of this. Why is it that it cannot pass unless he drinks it? He drinks it and then it can pass. Recently, uh, I brought up the Ark of the Covenant as an example that best describes the cup that cannot pass. The cup that is not the will of the second person of the Elohim, the us, the triune Godhead, the cup that is not the will of the second person, Christ is the second person, says not my will but your will, doesn't he? So the cup is not his will. So whatever the cup is, it's not the will of the second person of the triune Godhead. It's the will of the Father. Now start going, whoa, because they are the same. How does that work? But that's what he says. Let it not be my will, but your will. Nonetheless, that's what he says. So the triune Godhead, the us, the Elohim, the second person's name literally is salvation. That's Proverbs 34. What is the name of the second person of the Elohim? Salvation. Yeshua. Right? Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes this is called the Second Peter three nine position. I'll get to that in a minute. You have to understand that Jesus Christ has three offices. He has the prophet office. That's Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, a prophet that that is like Moses. He has the high priest office. That is the Aaronic, or makes him see. So Aaron is the high priest. Moses is the prophet. Christ is the prophet, like Moses, and he's the high priest, like. Aaron, even though he's at an elevated level. They are just typologies. And then he is the judging king of all things. That's his third office. So when he drinks the cup that cannot pass, notice how I'm emphasizing cannot pass. Keep thinking to yourself, this is the cup that cannot pass unless he drinks it. Again, why is that the case? What if he doesn't drink it? Then it cannot pass. So, what, when he drinks it and it passes, what does it, what's the, what's the result of that? So, when he drinks the cup that cannot pass, he's in his prophet, redeemer, salvation, John 3.16, the everlasting life gift stage, if you will, or phase, if you want to think of it that way. It's called the 2 Peter 3 9 phase. What is 2 Peter 3 9? When he is about to drink that cup, that cannot pass unless he drinks it, gotta keep emphasizing that. He's 2 Peter 3 9. What's Second Peter 3 9? That he wishes that none should perish. So and after he drinks this, he's no longer in his prophet stage at some point. The prophet stage is empty. And he he then ascends and assumes the duty of the intercessor high priest or the mediator mediator. And then his third office, of course, is the ending of the wicked ones and establishing his millennial kingdom. And that's when he is the Prince of Peace and he is the King of Kings. So those three offices are involved. And you have to know the one office that he is in when he's going to drink the cup that cannot pass is he is in his salvation office where he is the Savior of the world and he is willing that none should perish. That's the office he's in when he's got the cup in his hands. That's what the office he's in when he says, not my will, but your will. We'll bring that up again a million times today, I bet. Okay, not a million, half million. When Jesus Christ is in agony at Gethsemane, he is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 17. That's who he is. He's the one who was raised up with the words of God in his mouth, John 1, 1 through 4. He's, he's the only Savior. He's Jesus God, the only Savior, the only salvation, Acts 4.12. 1 John 4.14 declares him to be the Savior of the world. He came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. That is who he is when he's drinking this cup. That's his office. If you happen to make a mistake and put his high priest office when he's drinking the cup, that would not work. If you say he's the king of kings when he's drinking the cup, that will not work. The cup and corresponds to his salvation, his prophet status, saving position. So hopefully I got that nailed in there pretty good. So again, the duties of the office that he is in when he drinks the cup is consistent with 2 Peter 3.9. He wishes that none should perish. Now, to regress a little bit somewhat. Why would the Lord God Almighty come to seek and save the lost if he has predestined the lost? And that's my immediate question. He comes, to, he comes to seek out and to save the lost. And if he has predestined them to be lost, then what? See, as you know, the extreme Calvinist position insists that Jesus Christ is the author of evil, the one who causes all things. They don't say Jesus Christ does it, but Jesus Christ is God. And if God is the one who has ordained evil, pre- decreed evil, then Jesus Christ has predained and ordained evil. Okay, so how do you reconcile that with the fact that he wants to seek and save the lost? If he causes the lost. Again, it's senseless. Again, to repeat, the extreme Calvinist position is, is that Jesus, they insist that Jesus is the author of evil. He's the one that causes all things and therefore all evil. And this view negates Luke 19.10. It renders 19.10 of Luke a pretension, a pageantry. Without, without any substance or meaning. It's, and it's a grave error to do that to 1910 of Luke. Okay, if you endured lecture 204, Satan has long accused God of lying about the free will of mankind, angels and animals. He has always, he's relentless. He does it every day. And if God is lying about the free will of mankind, angels, and animals, in other words, if there is no free will of angels, there's no free will of animals, and there's no free will of mankind, then therefore God is a murderer. Does that make sense? Have you got the logic? I went from that. If, if God has preordained that no one has free will, and therefore some are lost and some are condemned based on some principle that no one understands then God, God is a murderer and Satan accuses him of being a liar and a murderer. Same as Satan, right? Remember when we went through that in the last last lecture. And if you cannot articulate the logic of this statement, I want you to consider the implications of condemning the wicked ones to the lake of fire. That's the second death, right? It's Revelation 20, 13 through 15. If there is no free will as they claim, therefore by force... I'm sorry, if there is no free will and God therefore by force predestined some to condemnation, then what happened to those some that were condemned? What are they? They're murdered. Would you understand that? So God is a murderer if he's predestined. If there's no free will, you've made God a murderer. They were slain without any possibility of hope of anything but being slain. And I will state unequivocally that this supposed teaching is a grievous error at best and a damnable lie at worst. It's hurtful. And it's not true. This is not the Christ that's described at Gethsemane who's going through agony. Who wants the cup that cannot pass to pass. Doesn't want it, but his will and the, and the Father's will. We'll get again to that in a minute. This is not Christ being described at Gethsemane that he is a murderer and a con- somebody who condemned before time, uh, individuals and animals and angels that never had any hope of salvation. It doesn't reconcile with Gethsemane. Gethsemane is agony, blood, sorrow, misery, anguish. This is not the Christ described to Gethsemane who asks that the cup be passed. All the while he's asking that the cup be passed, what does he know? Because he's omniscient God. What does he know? He knows. Fully that he must drink the cup. Matthew 26:42 through 43. Again, relentlessly every single day, every single hour, Satan is accusing God of lying about the transference of free will. He said only no one has free will. That's what Satan has been saying for centuries. And that makes God a murderer. Again, I want you to have that logically figured out. The gift of free will is, has never been transferred, is what he says. And, that is, and the gift of free will is required for true existence. If you don't have free will, you don't have true existence. And I've said that thousands of times. Other things I've said thousands of times, as you know, this is the core of Satan's accusation, is that God has, is lying about free will. And if God is lying about free will, then God is a what? Say it with me. He's a murderer and a liar which is exactly what Satan is accusing him of doing every day, all day, doesn't miss a day. You see, if I have not been endowed with freedom, if I have no freedom, if I have no free will capabilities, and neither do you, then I, then we, do not truly exist. Instead, we have this illusion of existence, which is what the evolutionary atheists shout from their ivory towers as well or this before. The irony for Satan is that if only God has existence, if only God has free will, and he's the only one with free will, and he has withheld existence from angels, mankind, and animals by withholding free will from them, then God is not a murderer. He can't be a murderer. Does that make sense? I me mean, explain, because if we are automa- automatons, if all we are is automated machines, uh, and, that, and automation has no life, it's merely got the appearance of life, it's artificial life, and there's no such thing as artificial life. It's simulated life, but it's not life. And if God destroys it, it's not murder. Does that make sense? So if Satan is right, and God is lying about no one has free will, but he has predestined evil and he's predestined condemnation. Then he can't be a murderer because no one has life. So there's no possible, everybody's a machine. He's just taking a hammer to a computer. The computer doesn't have life. It simulates it, but it doesn't have it. So God can't be a murderer. The Bible loudly testifies that living souls have life. Genesis 1.20, 1.21, 1.24, 1.26, 1.27, 1.28, 1.30, 2.7, 5.1, 6.17, 6.19, 7.15, 7.22. says we have life. That means we have to have free will. And God is not a murderer. Matthew ten twenty eight to mention the ones most prominent, God says we have life. Why would God say you have life if we don't have life? It's everywhere in the Bible that we have life. Why would he say it if it isn't true? And you've heard me rant about this for years. So what's different today, you're going to ask, right? Why are you devoting time to this? Because i got to shift off of that. i got to make sure you've got it. You understand it's a cup that cannot pass unless he drinks it. What office he's in. i got to get you through that. Now we have to devote some time to the Ark of the Testimony. What is the Ark of the Testimony? What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's a portrait of Christ primarily. That's what it is. Overwhelmingly, it's a portrait of Christ. Do you have any feedback? Is that what you're doing? A little static? Okay. So again, we have the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It's a portrait of Christ. And not only that, it's informative as to the cup of Gethsemane. If you're going to figure out the cup of Gethsemane and you're going to figure out the bruising of the heel, then you're going to head towards the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. Exodus 25.10-22 through 22 is designed to reveal the hypostatic union. What is the hypostatic union? That is the greatest of all mysteries. That's the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy, Timothy three fourteen through sixteen. That's the, he calls that the hidden truth. The hidden truth is the hypostatic union, of the God-Man. The hidden truth is that the Creator God would add humanity, which of course means the seed of the woman, right? He's going to add humanity through the Virgin Mary. That is the hidden truth. And that's the seed of the woman and that's Genesis 3.15. Again, it's the First Timothy 3.16 mystery. The greatest of all the mysteries is the adding of humanity. The Ark of the Covenant provides information to this mystery. If you study the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to find out what's going on with the hypostatic union and you're also then therefore going to find out what's going on with the cup of Gethsemane And then that will help you understand the bruising of the heel. So that's how it all works. That's the plan. So again, the Ark of the Covenant provides crucial information to the mystery of godliness. And the Ark is made of acacia wood. I think everybody knows that. And is overlaid with pure gold. So I have essentially a box that is made out of acacia wood. And gold is on the inside and on the outside and on every single surface. And the the wood does not show through at all. Can't see the wood. You don't know that it's wood. You've heard that it's wood. It's acacia wood, but you've never been able to see it because the gold hides it. And that, of course, is a picture of Christ's humanity being hidden by His deity. That's why it's called the hidden truth or the hidden mystery. And again, that's it. The overlay of pure gold. It's got to be pure, right? Can't have any any dregs in it and he draws, draws in it. It's got to be absolutely pure. Exodus twenty-five, eleven, And it's overlaid inside and out. And that's ta- testifying that Jesus Christ is God and man as we all know. He's the God-man. And his humanity, of course, is displayed by the wood and it is, again, completely covered by his deity. If you have a position that his, his deity is subordinate to his humanity then you are in error and you are now headed into the ditch and you will take years to dig you out of it. But you will see people all the time that stand up and talk about how Christ is afraid of his own crucifixion and he is afraid of all kinds of things. What is fear? Fear is, is a sin. Ultimately, by, especially when it's applied to God. Again, all of you who've listened and I'm just grateful for you that have and and I appreciate what you say to me and I wish I could write back to all of you but as I'm getting aged and infirm by the day, I'm uh, having difficulty keeping up with my responsibilities. But all of you who listen or who have attended Cliffside in the past, you're used to me pointing out this fundamental truth of Scripture that the deity has authority Over the humanity. Never invert them. That is a grievous error. I think that is not just an error. I think it's sinful. Because you you want to bring Christ to your level. Anthropomorphism. And he is not at your level. He will never be at your level. His deity has authority over his humanity. And so he cannot sin. Those of you who think, well he could have sinned. Are wrong again. Raise your hand, you're wrong. He can't sin because the ark of the covenant is acacia wood, completely covered by pure gold, where you cannot see the wood. Exodus 25:10 through 22 describes the mercy seat. There's a mercy seat on the ark of the covenant. Obvious question: What? Why is there a mercy seat? I have two cherubim, and they have their wings stretched out, pointed at each other. Genesis 3:24. Because I got two cherubim blocking the gate the east gate to the tree of life so that Adam and the woman cannot go back in and grab the tree of life after they've been in a sinful condition. And they would therefore be in a sinful condition forever and that would be the second death. So he guards the tree of life with two cherubim and they cannot get through the east gate when they were driven out of it. So that's part of the reason that they're on the the Ark of the Covenant. So again, the guardians, Genesis 3.24. So they are the guardians of the tree of life. And then now I've got that. At least I've got a picture of why they're on the Ark of the Covenant, right? They're the guardians of the tree of life. So they've got to be there. And then I've got these poles. There are these poles that shall be in the rings of the Ark. And the poles are acacia wood and they are also completely covered with gold. And they slip through these rings. So I've got these poles that shall be the rings of the Ark. Shall be in the rings of the ark, and the ark is to be carried by these poles. So you got a pole, you get one pole. I got, a, I got the back of the pole. We have to be Levites. We have to be priest, priest issue, and we can carry the ark with the poles through the rings. And the mercy seat is to be on top of the ark, and that's where God would meet with Israel, and that's where He would speak to Israel. That's where He will be. Now, it's possible to dedicate hours upon hours on how and why these the I'm sorry, I said, it. let me get some water. Why did God give all of these designs and all of these instructions as to this ark, Exodus 25.1? And he knows, of course, he spoke them, the Lord God spoke them to Moses, and they testify of Jesus Christ. Essentially, the ark of the testimony has one purpose really just one purpose ultimately which is to unveil the deity of Christ as well as his redemptive work and his humanity so that's what it is it's a testimony of Christ and what he's going to do and why he's going to do it so now we got a shot why didn't he why what's going on with this cup why does he say not my will but your will it, and please let it pass he doesn't say it that way but that's the inference that we always end up with Anyway, for today, the plan is to consider the cup of Gethsemane alongside the Ark of the Covenant. And let's see if that does not spark some understanding. And then we're going to go about this task by way of 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. So I have to read 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. It's not it's 15 verses, so it's going to take a little bit of while. So here we go. Second Samuel 6, 1 through 15. Through fifteen again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, thirty thousand, and David arose and went with, went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they're going to go get the ark of the covenant. That's the plan. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Let me repeat that. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab who was on the hill and Oza, Uzzah, Uzzah, and Aiho, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So you with me so far? They're going to go get the ark and so they get a cart and it's a new cart and they put the ark on a new cart and they have the priests there. They have Oza and Abinadab. So they have the Ark of God. And they're, they're all accompanying the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. All kinds of instruments. Probably trumpets. Maybe a banjo or two. Instruments of firwood. There's your banjo. On harps and strings, instruments. On tambourines, on cisterns, and on cymbals. And when they came to nation's threshing floor... Uzzah put out his hand to the to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stub, stumbled, stumbled. Sorry, having trouble. So they went to get the ark, and they put it on a cart, a new cart, and they put put a bunch of oxen to pull the cart, and they followed behind it. And they had they had musical instruments, and Uzzah puts his hand out to to the ark of the God and took hold of it. Because the ark, the oxen stumbled. So I have an oxen that stumbles. So the ark is going to do what? It's going to come off the new cart. So Uzzah puts his hand on the new cart. I'm sorry, on the, on the ark of the covenant. It's on the new cart. And verse 7 said, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. With me so far? And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Essentially, David's saying, why'd you you kill Uzzah? He's just trying to keep the ark from falling off the new cart. The oxen stumbled. It wasn't Uzzah's fault. He's just trying to do the right thing and you you blow him up. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord at that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside the house of Obed-Edom, the Gidite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So obviously, Obed-Edom, Odom, I'm sorry, Obed-Edom did not touch the ark. Us it touched the ark. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was in those bearing the ark of the, the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen, a linen, I'm going to get this out of the way, ephod so David in the house of Israel brought up the ark from the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpets. Okay? So there it is. What do we got here? David had defeated the Philistines. Yay for David. And he was tasked to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Go get the ark. The first David needed to rebuild Jerusalem, so we had to do that. First Chronicles 13, 1 Chronicles 1, 16-43. Before he could transport the ark. And we know that the Philistines had moved the ark by means of a cart, 1 Samuel 6, 7. So this isn't the first time they were, it was on a cart. So I try to imagine how the Philistines moved this ark. On a cart. With oxen. Now if you're thinking raiders of the lost ark, okay, you can't cite that as a credible source. But notice that David's plan was to place the ark on not the old cart, but on a what? A new cart. I'm not going to use the old cart. I'm going to use a new cart. What, what could possibly go wrong here? How about those poles and those rings? Whoops. Oops. And some of you may be asking, why did Uzzah die? He's just trying to keep the cart from falling off, I'm sorry, trying to keep the ark from falling off the cart, right? That's what he's trying to do. And, and if he's, but he dies, and what about the Philistines? You think this is the first time an oxen stumbled? What about the Philistines? They're pulling this ark around on a cart with my oxen as well. Now, did it, did it fall off? Did they have to study it too? How come I don't have a story about a bunch of dead Philistines? Don't have it. Just Uzzah. And then some of you may be again asking, why did Uzzah die while the Philistines were likely unscathed? Why this difference? What's the difference? What has that got to do with the cup of disseminate? And the bruised heel. And That's the Isaiah 53.10 question, by the way. Ooh. I don't have a place to write, by the way. I'd have to do it twice now. have to correct that. What does this have to do with the cup of Gethsemane and the bruised heel? And again, that's the Isaiah 53.10 question. For those who wish to jump ahead of the HTRP, go right ahead and go right to Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53 is the passage that identifies Jesus as the man of sorrows. Now, where are we in the New Testament? We are in Gethsemane, aren't we? Matthew 26. Because that is where he's the man of sorrows, along with John 11. He's the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53.3, The man of sorrows who is despised and rejected, acquainted with grief. There is no beauty, no form, no comeliness that he should be desired by mankind. That is Isaiah 53. That's what it says. He'll be rejected. He'll be hated. He's not attractive. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. How many of you, How many times have you heard this particular verse? He was wounded for our transgression. And then what does it say after that? Bruised. Oh my goodness. Now we got that bruised heel. Genesis 3.15, right? He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his piercing we are healed. That's an often recited verse or passage, as it should be. And one might suggest that Isaiah 53, 1-12 be mandatory study in all churches. At least connect it to Genesis 3.15 and connect it to Gethsemane. Try that. And it's describing the cup of Gethsemane and the crucifixion, in my opinion. So you should be in, you should know that. I hope you do. I hope we get started on it at least today. Isaiah 53:10 is the piece de, de resistance, right? The verse that explains many things. Here's what it says: Yet it pleased the Yahweh, the Y H B H the unpronounceable name, the tetragrammaton. Yet it pleased the Yahweh to bruise him. Oh, really? I I get goosebumps. God bruised God. God bruised God. Remember, I asked you, how is it that that a human being can bruise an omnipotent God? How can How can that happen? Remember that Judas. How did Judas do it? He's the seed of the serpent. How is he going to bruise an omnipotent God? Wound him. So i me repeat it. Yet it pleased the YHBH to bruise him. And, and again, that's our connected path to Genesis 3.15. The Elohim, the us, the triune Godhead, of which Jesus is one of the triune Godhead. They're, they're dis- distinct persons, but they're, they're all one. The triune Godhead is pleased that Christ was bruised. Is pleased that Christ was bruised and put through grief. Why is God pleased at the bruising of God? There's your question for today. Because He is. When Christ is in Gethsemane and He is a man of sorrows, God is pre- pleased. And God is Christ. And Christ is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And God is the Holy Spirit. And the Father is God. And God is the Father. Again, it's a mystery. It's, it's not fathomable for our minds. Just for today, note that Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased God to bruise God. And you have to ask, why is God pleased at the bruising of God? So the bruising of Christ is not a physical process. Is that obvious? It can't be a physical process. But it's associated with an extraordinary sorrow. He's the man of sorrow and grief, and anguish, and agony, and blood. And the Godhead is pleased about that. The pleasure of the YHVH is exhibited because Christ poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah fifty-three twelve. So you have an important clue there about the bruising now. Essentially, the Lord God Almighty revealed or exposed his sorrow, his agony, his anguish, and his grief that's what he did, and that pleased, that bruised him, and that pleased him at the same time. The Elohim is pleased by, by what Christ said and did there, obviously, because they're, both, they're all perfect. They all have the plan. And so God, the, the God Almighty, the Elohim, is pleased by what Christ has done at Gethsemane. And I should interject, why does Christ do this? How does the joy of the Godhead over the great sorrow of Jesus reconcile with the extreme Calvinist predestination position? If he's predestining all condemnation and all salvation, and he's in great sorrow, how is that pleasing to the Godhead, triune God? Once again, there's no possible reconciliation that's attainable. Someone, anyone, explain why God has great sorrow over his predestination, if if he's predestining things. When I say predestination, I mean predestination of salvation, of individual salvation. Why does he have great sorrow over it? And then why is the God, the triune Godhead, pleased that he has great sorrow over it? Why is the triune Godhead pleased and joyful and has pleasure over the fact that Christ is exposing this great sorrow and anger? Predestination is by definition an act of force. It's a decision of the will. It's a fixed irrevocable choice. And I submit that it's completely in conflict with agony, anguish, and great sorrow and the man of sorrow and bruising. It doesn't fit. Can't make it fit. You get your hammer out and beat it to death and you're never going to make it fit. It's obviously not true. The man of sorrow weeps over those who willfully reject his extended hand of salvation. That's what He does. And God displays that. This is probably the first time He does it. At Gethsemane, for the first time, God is, is revealing the sorrow that He has over the lost. Now, reconcile that with the one saying He's the one that condemns the lost before they even have a chance to be anything but lost. And now He has great sorrow over the lost. Yes, sir. That's right. Absolutely right. Every time he does something, he has a fantastic reason and we never know what it is because we're idiots. See, when you recognize that, that it's absolutely conflicted, this irrevocable predestination, decision of, the for, of a forced will, it's in conflict with Gethsemane. It's an absolute opposite of what Gethsemane is displaying. And it's the first time that God displays Gethsemane. He has been hiding it, not hiding it, but withholding it. Why did he pick Gethsemane as the time to do it? Answer that question. The man of sorrow weeps over those who willfully reject his hand of salvation. And again, if he's the one that predestined them to condemnation, why would he weep? It makes absolutely no sense at all. And not only that, they look at the, the lamb slain as a wonderful thing. It's a triumph, yes. as I said last lecture. Yes. It's a victory. Yes. And they want everybody to know. And remember what he says, and I'm going to go way, way off track here. I'll have to find myself in some phase. He says to his apostles, I want you to stay awake. I want you to watch, and I want you to hear. And I want you to listen and know what's going on here. I'm about to get in a conversation. The Holy Spirit is going to come down, and we're going—he's going to strengthen me. I'm going to talk to the Father, and we're going—we're going to expose something that no one knows to you. And of course, they all fell asleep. Not everybody. Somebody wrote it down. Somebody got it. But this is a refutation of the lie of Satan—is what ha- what's happening here. And he's waited until this particular time to let the apostles know, and let us all know. Anyway. We have Uzzah to deal with today. Uzzah and the new cart. And it's important that we have a new cart. We understand it's a new cart. We didn't go get the old cart at least. We went out and made a new cart. David had to make a new cart, right? And He had to take the ark and put the ark on the new cart. Consider what he's doing here. Again, if there was a new cart to transport the ark of the testimony, then there must be an old cart. And there was an old cart. Who had the old cart? The Philistines. They had the old cart. The Philistines moved the ark on their cart. That's what they did. Now, rightfully, some of you are asking, why weren't the Philistines stricken? Well, they kind of were. They weren't instantly killed like Uzzah. So why weren't they instantly killed like Uzzah was? But they weren't. Because they they had to load the ark on their cart, right? So how do they do that? 1 Samuel 6-7. Actually, they were infected by with tumors, 1 Samuel 5, 6. So they all got tumors, boils, if you want to think of it that way, right? So they're covered with tumors and boils. They got to know something's not going right here. So the Philistines of Ashdod recognized that the ark was a very dangerous thing and a dangerous artifact. They knew, oh, we got a problem here. We're all covered in tumors. Oops. And so the Philistines... Of Ashdod, they sent the ark to Ekron. That was their plan. We're going to send it to Ekron, the Ekronites. Have at it. You guys deal with it. And, and then guess what happened to the Ekronites? They also got covered completely with tumors. Now, why did he cover them with tumors but not, but not instantly kill them? He kill, instantly kills Uzzah. I want to say kills physical death. Keep that in mind. One didn't know better, one knew better, one didn't know better, one knew better is right. He had a lot of mercy. Tumors are mercy. Because if he physically kills them and they are unsaved, then what are they forever? They are unsaved forever. And he doesn't do that because he doesn't predestinate Condemnation. So he gave them tumors instead of death. He keeps doing the same thing over and over again, hoping somebody on the Calvinist side would read something. Okay? So, they... So the the echinites were also covered in tumors as a result of carrying... So carrying the ark is a big deal, right? It's critical stuff. Failing to adhere to the protocol of God results in consequences. Now The consequences are different based on their opportunity to be saved. That's right. He is the ark. That's correct. Absolutely right. Anyway, this ark is a problem, especially so for those who hate the God of Israel. And there's a lot of people who hate the God of Israel right now, and it's getting worse and worse and worse every day. And that, of course, is exactly what the Bible says will happen at the end of the age of the Gentiles. Anyway, the Echonites get a little ticked off about this, and they cry out. And they say, the, Ash, the Ashdonites, Donites, Ash-Dom-I-D- they have sent the Ark of God, the God of Israel, to kill us and all our people. That's what they say. So you send us the Ark because you're trying to kill us. It's working. We're covered with tumors. So the hand of the Lord brought destruction to the city of Ekronite, or Ekron and the Ekronites, and he caused all of the men of the city to be covered in boils. Again, see Revelation 16.2. He likes boils. So that's what he does to you. So obviously there is a method. God has instructions as to how to transport the ark safely. What are the instructions? David has a new cart. I'm looking through the instructions. Do I see the new cart in the instructions? I don't see the new cart. That was an imitation of the Philistines' mode of transport. He, he imitated the pagans with the ark that's Christ. Now, do we have any... Is that going on anywhere? Is it, have we introduced paganism into the deity of Christ? Somewhere in the church today? Like everywhere? Yes, we have. We have all kinds of little things that we do that are paganistic or profane. So anyway, how do you suppose this was going to go with his new cart? If, if you guessed badly, you're right. Uzzah a priest had to know Exodus twenty five, fifteen. He's a priest. He know that he knows that the ark is moved by what? Poles through rings. You've got to go through rings. You got to have poles and rings. That's how you move it. The ark must the, the ark must be lifted up. John three fourteen. The Son of God must be lifted up. So whoever believes in Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. The lifting up of the bronze serpent of Numbers twenty one five through nine, all that looked at that got saved, all of them. So the poles have you lift up the ark. You lift up Christ. Obviously, there is a crucial, essential doctrine of the saving grace of Jesus Christ being displayed at 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Samuel 5 through 6 and Numbers 21 5 through 9. Obviously, Jesus Christ was lifted up, if you want to think about it the most, at Goliath, the, the skull of Goliath, on a wooden pole. Now I've got to ask this question Is the lifting up of Christ so that everybody who sees him is saved? Is that compatible with predestination? No. Is anything in the Bible? No. The lifting up principle is sacred. Uzzah had to know that the oxen were not allowed to pull a new cart with the ark on the cart. He had to know that. And he's going for it. So is David. They're both doing it. Christ must be moved with poles through rings. That's the way you have to do it. If you're going to move Christ, you have to do him, you have to do it with poles through rings. And David had to know it. Why did David and Uzzah corrupt the doctrine of salvation through the God-man Jesus Christ? Why did they do that? That's what the Ark is testifying. He's the Ark. Because those instructions, they're embedded in the instructions as to the gold overlay of the wood. For example, the poles in the rings, the mercy seat on top of the ark, the two cherubim with their stretched out wings covering the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? It's a lid. That's what it is. And it's got blood all over it. What are the means of these directions that were spoken to Moses by the Almighty God himself? And why did David and Uzzah say, no, we're going with a new cart? couple of oxen. Why don't you you walk along the side of it in case it falls over so you can touch it and die? He probably didn't tell us of that. But others should have known. And David is angry, it says in the Bible. Is he angry over God? No, he's angry over himself for causing this problem. That's the kind of man that David was. Hard after God. You should know that the gold for the cherubim had to be hammered had to be beaten. It's beaten gold. The poles shall be in the rings and they shall not be taken out from the rings. So I got poles in rings and I can't take those poles out. Now why not? That's an important piece of information especially if you're trying to solve the Bruce Heel and the cup of Gethsemane. And I'm saying that for Kurt in Arizona. Hi Kurt. Helping you out there buddy. You might not think so yet, but I'll still I'll be back. To repeat and to repeat everything about the Ark, Exodus 25, 10 through 22 testifies of Jesus Christ. I can't say that enough. Even the contents, especially the combination of the contents of the Ark and how the Ark is made and why it's been made that way. As most of you are aware, the Ark has the two stone tablets of Moses, right? They're not Moses' name. That's the finger of God that wrote those things. And they're inside there. Uh, There's Aaron's budded rod with its miraculously sprouted buds and blossoms and almonds. That's in there. And it's still got the almonds. It's still got the blossoms. And it's still in there. There's also the uh, the jar uh, of the bread from heaven. There's a jar of manna in there and the ashes of the red heifer. Now, I think, uh, long ago, uh, there was a suggestion... That the the written manuscripts of Moses, the Torah, is in there. And I, I believe that's probably correct. But why were all of those things selected to be put into the ark? Because once you put them in the ark, they have great meaning towards what? That's right, Gethsemane and the bruising, among other things. They testify of Christ and especially going to testify of Gethsemane because that's a special event, one of the most special events in all of Scripture, if not the very top. We have the triune Godhead weeping. And also having joy. How am I doing for time? i got 45 minutes. Is that what you said? So why was Uzzah subjected to an instant death by touching the ark? How does Uzzah's disobedience align with the cup of Gethsemane? For that matter, what about Nadab and Abihu? Exodus 24.1, Exodus 24.9. And the 70 elders of Israel. They got to worship God from afar. So Nadab and Abihu. Abihu are part of the 70 elders that they got to hear God and be close to God, but not quite where they belong. They had to wait down some. The only, the Moses the prophet and Aaron, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, the high priests were able to come near the God, Lord God Almighty. The others had to stay down there. But Nadab and Abihu obviously saw the God of Israel and unmistakably heard him talk. So they heard his voice. They're the sons of Aaron. Yet Nadab and Abihu they brought pagan fire to the altar. Now what are they thinking? They're profaning fire. Leviticus ten one through two is what it says. And fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Their disobedience ended just like Uzzah. So what is it with these priests? that want to keep doing things, mixing it up. I should add that Aaron held his peace over that. Those his sons, dead. The nation of Israel needed to understand how serious these ceremonial edicts from God really are. They are life or death. They're seemingly small things, but they're not. They're life or death things. Any deviation, you make any deviation into the Word of God in any way, you are in trouble. If you're saying something about God that is not true, you are in trouble. If you're adding elements that are not true, you are in trouble. Who's in trouble? Probably almost every preacher I know. But these these men were met with instant death. Physical death. Keep that in mind. Nadab, Avahu, and Uzzah, Uzzah, and others. Even Moses and Aaron. Moses kills the rock twice, right? You can't crucify the rock twice. You can't do it. And he, he knew that. He's trying to get himself killed by Israel. but He thought the water wouldn't come out. God let the water come out anyway. And then what happens to Moses? He goes up on a mountain and he is dead. What a wonderful thing to be killed by God. Think about that for a second. And I got I have the Korah Rebellion. I have Isaiah. I have the men of Bes, Beshemesh. The men of Beshemesh are my favorites. 1 Samuel 6, 19 through 20. They decided, they're, they're, they're devout. They decide that their plan is to lift the mercy seat and look into the ark. That's what we're going to do. Pa-pong. Pull that mercy seat off. We're going to look inside there. We're going to come face to face with the tablets, the law. Didn't go well. Death. Physical death. Remember Christ says in a powerful statement, don't fear those that kill the body. Don't fear those that kill the body. Fear me. Fear him who can kill the body and send the soul and body into destruction, into the place of destruction. Matthew 10:28. Jesus is the Him that can do that. God is Him. And the commonality of all the aforementioned deaths is that Israel, the people of Israel, were watching and listening to all of this stuff while it was happening. And who else was watching and listening to all of this stuff while it was happening? The angels, absolutely. They saw Uzzah. They saw Nadab. They saw Abba Abba. They saw the guys lift the mercy seat and look inside. They saw all of that. Everybody knew. God is not only testifying to mankind, He's testifying to the angels. Because that's where it all started, right? Death comes to those who do not revere the ordinances, the ordinances of God, the warnings of God, the character of God, the person of God. You've got to have that right. That's why if you're doing this preaching stuff, you better do it right, because you're held to a higher authority. Gotta be careful. You see the Lord God has placed within his precepts and statute his plans of salvation, which is the person of Jesus Christ. The one who must drink the cup, he's got to drink the cup, or it will not pass. Matthew twenty six forty two. Notice I keep repeating that. There's only one means of salvation. You, me, we. We must call upon his name, Joel two thirty two, Romans ten thirteen. We must believe that Jesus is God. We must believe that He is the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. Me, we, me, and you, we, we must be like the thief. We've got to say, remember me, O Lord. That's what the thief did, or the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. There's no other way. There's no other means. Everything else will end in death. The second death. Which is why Uzzah dies. He he didn't use the poles and the rings to lift up the ark. Obviously, the poles and the rings are crucial. What are they saying? We've got to have that figured out, right? And so he's, he has death. Nadab Abihu thought it wise to commingle pagan rituals with the truth of Christ? Death. The men of Beth Shemesh thought they had the authority to remove the mercy seat from the ark. What's the mercy seat? That's Christ. That's his blood that's on there. They're going to take Christ off the ark. And they're going to look inside. The place where Christ would sit, that's where his blood is sprinkled allegorically and I believe eventually, physically, his blood will be sprinkled there. And it's the blood that, that protects a sinful being from the law that does not save. The law does not save. It's unable to save Romans 8 3, Hebrews 10 4. All paths except for Christ cannot save. They lead to death. And God makes sure He protects that. With everything He has. Only Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. Jesus Christ is the only one who can. He's the only one who can drink the cup. He's the only one who will drink the cup. Why? Am I? Did I say something bad there? No, no, no. Okay. So we, we got to understand why he's the only one who can, the only one that will. We need to know. How come the Holy Spirit isn't drinking the cup? He, you know, he's part of the Godhead. He can drink the cup. Christ is the one that drinks the cup. That will drink the cup. He's been selected by the Godhead to do it before the. He's the Lamb slain before the before time, right? So, again, how are the ark and the cup related? That's the key here. We've gone through the hedge and the kiss of Satan. We went through the cup and the sop of God. Now we've got the ark and the cup. I am obviously proposing that the ark of the covenant holds answers as to the cup of Gethsemane. And the most obvious is the mercy seat. Now, I ran out of paper. So I have to go to page two. The mercy seat is sprinkled with blood on Yom Kippur. The blood was a foreshadowing of Christ's blood that will be covering the mercy seat. Only Christ's blood can cover the mercy seat. And that directs us to many questions. The foremost is, why must the mercy seat be covered in the the blood of God? Why does His blood have to be there on the lid? It must be so. And the fact that God Himself was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in in the world, Received up in glory, First Timothy 3.16, the greatest of the hidden truths. Because without God being manifested in the flesh, what do I not have? I don't have innocent blood. I have innocent blood, justified, sinless blood. The blood of Christ is the only living blood that is in existence. All of our blood is corrupted. His blood is perfect. Leviticus 7.26 prohibits the eating of blood, right? We all know that. Leviticus 17.14, 17.11. The life of all flesh is in the blood. Okay? Christ is the life of all flesh. John 11.25 His blood is the blood of life, the one blood of life. There's only one blood of life. It's His. And the blood of life will be poured out on the mercy seat in type and in reality, in my opinion. Don't ever remove the blood of Christ from salvation. Don't do that. Don't take the lid off. Keep in mind, Christ instructs His apostles at Matthew 2626 through 29 on His blood. Jesus took the bread and said, "Take, eat this. This is my body. I am the bread of life, the true bread from heaven." John 6:32-35. The hidden man, Revelation 2:17. Then Christ took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, "Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood." Why did he break why Why the bread before the blood? Got to figure that out too. For this is my blood which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. Remission is amnesty, it's forgiveness, it's mercy. Jesus Christ has now ordered his disciple to drink allegorically his blood. That's what he said to do. His life blood is to be put inside of them, inside of us. That's what we do at communion. We're drinking his blood allegorically, in allegorically symbol, in symbolism, not truthfully. Now there's some churches that believe they're actually the blood becomes Christ's blood because somebody stands over it and says so. It's a blood transfusion, if you want to think of it that way. Now, this is a reversal of Leviticus 17.11, 17.14. And that reversal occurs in Matthew 26.27. Imagine the response of his son to apostles. We're not supposed to drink blood. Leviticus 17.11, 17.14. You're telling us to drink blood. And five verses later, after he tells them to drink my blood... Christ God is in deep distress, exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. And his words are, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Five verses after he said, drink my blood. Boom, he's in Gethsemane. Do you think that's a coincidence? Not a coincidence. I got a cup of blood that you can drink and then a cup of blood that only he can drink. or A cup that only he can drink the contents. I said that wrong. Matthew 26:27 is the cup of life. It's the living blood. And so what is the cup that he's got in his hand at 2639? If one's the cup of life, what's the other one? It's not the cup of life. He said, drink this, it's the cup of life. Then he has. Then he must drink the other cup. Again, the blood of life covers the law of death, and the blood of the mercy seat is a barrier to death. If there's no blood, there is no life, there's no barrier to death. It's very similar to the veil that Christ tears in Matthew 27:51 as He yields His spirit. Last thing He does is tear that veil. Boom. Uzzah dies. Nadab, Abahai die. The men of Bethshemesh die. All die physically because God must protect His children from the path of the second death. There's only one path that leads to eternal life. Everything else is death, and adding death to life is, is not to be done. The woman, Matthew 13:33, the parable of the woman who hides the leaven in the meal. Eventually, she can tap it. Contaminates all the meal, right? I got just as the tares grew among the wheat, and the enemy came and sowed tares, Matthew 13, 24 through 25, while men slept. So here we go again, disseminating. The blackbird's nest in the mustard tree, which has grown far beyond its intended size. All of these have the theme that demonstrate the consequences of mixing the profane with the one true road to life. And God will intervene, He will stop that. God will resist, especially when Israel was in its infancy. He had to get it, get it right. They had to know. He is truthful. He's faithful to protect his plan of salvation, which is the person and blood of Christ, of Jesus Christ. So, so Christ's blood covers, cleanses us all from sin, 1 John 1, seven. He's our shield, Psalm 28.7, our hiding place, and our shield, Psalm 119.114. He hides us from What? We need to be shielded from something. There are two cups. I have the cup of death and sin. I have the tree of death. And then I have the cup of life and I have the tree of life. And you start to begin to feather those together. We drink his blood and we live. He drinks the cup of Gethsemane that cannot and will not pass unless he drinks it. That's the only way. So, what's in that cup? So, he's the ark. And he is life, and he, gives, he hands to his apostles the cup of life, and his blood, his life blood. So what is he drinking? It isn't life, is it? So life itself must be doing what? Drinking death. Obviously, the cup of Gethsemane refers to the mercy seat of the ark. So how is that so? They're both doing the same thing. In a sense that the mercy seat is protecting the Beshemites. and they didn't—they pulled off the lid, death. Jesus urged his apostles to watch, and instead they slept. What did they miss? What astonishing truth was not seen? Did they see Jesus Christ drink the cup, or were they all asleep? Do not succumb to temptation. What's the temptation? He said, "Don't say." You must pray that you don't fall for something. You're going to fall for something. You're going to fall for the lie of Satan which says that God is a liar and a murderer and there's no free will. And if you watch what happens at Gethsemane, you're going to find out that that's a lie and that that free will exists. The Father has will. He says so. Not my will, but your will. The Son has will. They have will. Are they the only ones with will? Can't be so. So what's happening in Gethsemane is this refutation of Satan's lie that there is no free will. Free will exists. In fact, that's what it's doing. Free will exists. Not my will, but your will. Free will exists. Without free will, the, uh, the apostles, they heard, they heard that. Does God, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. Does God withhold free will? He doesn't. He has it. He even says so. The apostles heard it. The angels heard it. And that's crucial and critical information. The angels, every single angel heard that God has will. Did God hide this truth? Why did he reveal it at Gethsemane? He comes right out and says, We have will. Everything has will. Satan is lying. He waits till Gethsemane before he says it. Why does he do that? He always waits. Oh, I guess right there. What about these poles and the rings and the two cherubim? We've got to deal with that. How does Christ desire that none should perish but that all should come to repentance? Second Peter three nine. How does that comply with the cup of Gethsemane? It does. Because he's in that role. And again, what are we, we're shielded. What are we shielded by? Shielded from? And he is the ark. And so the Ark drinks the cup. Think of it that way. There you go. See you on the November the 19th. All things. The creeks don't. Oh, we got a foot of snow today for those of you who wonder why I'm wearing a flannel shirt.